0: Alright, I want to welcome you to Grace Community Church this morning. I see a few new faces that I didn't get a chance to meet on the way in, and we welcome you to our continuing study of the book of Genesis together. And one of the things that we do at Grace Community Church is we preach our way through books of the Bible. So beginning in the book of Genesis, verse by verse, passage by passage, we've made our way to Genesis 32. If you have your Bibles... Please go ahead and turn there this morning. Genesis chapter 32. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You, Lord, and we confess our need for You again, God. Lord, we confess our unworthiness, God, to call upon Your name, and yet we know, God, that You have chosen us in Christ, that You've called us to Yourself, and that You have given us access to the Father through Jesus Christ, our Mediator. Lord, we come today in the name of Jesus, and we ask You, Lord, to meet with us. God, we confess our great need to You all across this room. All across this room, Lord, we're either in one of two camps, and we both desperately need You. God, either we're dead in our trespasses and sins and we need You to raise us from the dead, or God, we find ourselves called to live the Christian life and yet powerless to do so unless You help us, Lord. And so we gather around Your Word this morning and our heart's desire, God, is to please You, to live in such a way that glorifies You, God. Be pleased, Lord, to breathe on Your Word today. To make it profitable in the life of this church. God, help us to gather around this text of Scripture and we ask you to speak to us through your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Might take a few awkward breaks this morning. Grab some water. I've been sick this week. Um, so just bear with me. So we're jumping back into. The book of Genesis, Uh, we're following the patriarch Jacob and he's just left 20 years of oppression with his uncle Laban that turned into his enemy. God has appeared to Jacob and he's commanded him to return back to the promised land. And that's what we're picking up in our text today, that on the way back to the promised land, the angels of God revealed themselves to Jacob, the servant of the Lord. And we're going to read our text together this morning. Genesis chapter 32. I invite you to read this with me. This is the Word of the Lord. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that You have shown to Your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 13, So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, 30 milking cows and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present was passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and he took his two wives and his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? and there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinu of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's Word to Grace Community Church this morning. Our text today begins with the angels of God being revealed to God's servant, Jacob. These are are the invisible spirits that, that Hebrews... Chapter 1 tells us that they're sent out from God as ministering spirits, sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation, sent out to serve God's chosen people. And these are the angels, the servants of the Lord that appear to Jacob. These are the invisible helpers that have been with him for 20 years as he faced oppression, in Haran, under his uncle Laban. These 20 years, they have faithfully helped him. They've ministered to him as God's servants. And all of a sudden, they appear to him in a vision as he's being brought back into the promised land. The angels of the Lord so many angels surround God's servant Jacob this is not just a guardian angel that's revealed to him so many angels surround him that he calls the name of this place maha name which means two camps or two armies these are the angelic armies of God are surrounding God's servant Jacob and we as the people of God my brothers and sisters in Christ This morning, we can trust God. Though we can't see it today like Jacob saw it, we can trust God for this same protection that He provides His servant. Listen to Psalm 34. He reminds us in Psalm 34, verse 7, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him to deliver them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who who fear Him to deliver Him. There is nothing more encouraging on the face of this planet than knowing that God fights for us. God Himself is protecting us. And this is what this vision is showing Jacob, that God is providing encouragement for His servant. And He's going to need it because He's about to face His brother Esau. Esau. Many of you remember this story that we covered just a few weeks back of the saga that has developed between these two brothers, Esau and Jacob. From their womb to their birth to young adulthood, Jacob has cheated his brother Esau out of a birthright and out of a blessing. And we, when we left that story Back in Genesis 27 where Esau, after Jacob stole his blessing, Esau wanted to kill his brother. He had plans to murder his own mother's son. And God is encouraging Jacob with this vision that these same angels, this same provision that God gave Jacob in Haran under Laban's oppression, this same God would deliver him and help him as he faced his brother Esau. Verse 3 tells us that that Jacob sends out messengers to his brother Esau, his estranged brother. And the messengers are basically sent with this simple message. Listen, tell Esau I'm loaded. Tell Esau that I have many, many possessions. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, tell him I have oxen tell him I have donkeys, tell him I have flocks, tell him I have male servants, tell him I have female servants. And so Jacob sends this message of prosperity back to his estranged brother Esau with the hopes that he's going to find favor in the sight of Esau, who last he heard, Esau wanted to kill him. Now something that can easily pass us by in this story, because we're not you know familiar with the geography of Israel and the way you know that these places are related to each other but something very interesting in this story is that as Jacob leaves Haran and makes his way back to the land of Canaan he doesn't have to take this route that he takes here he doesn't have to take the route that takes him directly to Esau in fact earlier in the book of Genesis when Abraham came from Haran into the land of Canaan. He didn't take this route. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible and you trace this out, maybe later this afternoon, you'll see that as Abraham came from the far east, from the land of Haran, he goes to the west side of the Dead Sea down into the land of Canaan. But Jacob does something entirely different in this story. He comes down the east side of the Dead Sea, and if you look at this on a map, he heads directly to the land of Esau. And something has happened since the last time Jacob and Esau have seen each other back in Genesis 27 in the providence of God over this 20-year period. The Lord God has taken Esau and he's moved him out of the land of Canaan, out of the promised land. At this point in the narrative in the book of Genesis, Esau's no longer dwelling in the promised land with his father Isaac. He's living outside of the promised land around this mountain that we're told is called Mount Seir in the land in the country of Edom. So what's happening here? I think the way that we're supposed to read this particular turn in the saga of Jacob and Esau is that Jacob is intentionally seeking to reconcile with his estranged brother Esau. He's intentionally moving in this direction. He's intentionally sending this message to his brother that I'm loaded, I have prosperity. And why in the world would he tell his brother that? Because because Jacob is planning to offer this gift that he's about to send later in this chapter to Esau's restitution. So I think one of the things that we can see happening in Jacob's life in this chapter is he's repenting of his great and his many sins. And we've been seeing the Lord transform this man over the last several months from a schemer, from a man who schemed and tricked, even even lied to his own father, to a man that trusts God and calls upon the name of the Lord. And I think that same thing is being shown to us in this passage, that he's repentant and he desires to reconcile and even make restitution to his wronged brother Esau. I think you can see this in his disposition to his brother. I want you to notice how humble he is, the humility that he displays before Esau as he's preparing to encounter him. Look at verse 4. Two different phrases here. In verse 4, the message, he refers to Esau as his lord. Tell my lord Esau this. And then he finishes that sentence by calling himself Esau's servant. Jacob says, Esau my lord, and I am your servant. And that's very interesting when we think about what we know about Jacob and Esau from earlier in the book of Genesis. Because two different times previous to this account, we have prophecy, prophetic words from God that tell us the exact opposite about Jacob and Esau. So back in chapter 25, you remember that birth announcement, that prophecy that was given um, when they were in the womb. And that prophecy was this, that the older, and that was Esau, would serve the younger, and that was Jacob. That was God's sovereign choice with these two twin boys before they ever were born, before they ever did good or bad. The older will serve the younger. And then as we progress further into that blessing narrative where Isaac blesses who he thinks is Esau, But is actually Jacob pretending to be Esau, Isaac prophesies a blessing over his son. And here's one of the things that he says to Jacob. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. And so you see the tension here. God favors Jacob. And Jacob is the one, not Esau that is destined to reign, that is destined to rule over his brothers. And yet, what do we see in Genesis 32? In Genesis 32, we see that the one who is destined to reign is content to serve. The one who is destined to reign over his brother is content to serve his brother. And we see Jacob being transformed in this story. He's not scheming to outdo his brother. His hope now is in a future inheritance and he's trusting in God to exalt him at the proper time. And because he's trusting in God, he's willing to serve the one he's destined to reign over. And one of the things that I want you to see is is Jacob is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is like. The one who is destined to reign was content to serve. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus, He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. He emptied Himself and He took on the form of a servant for us and for our salvation Jacob is being conformed he's becoming like Jesus Christ destined to reign content to serve he's becoming a servant ruler a servant ruler and this is what God intends to do in our life we are destined to reign with Christ we are destined for eternal life but just like Jesus we are content to be conformed to take the form of a servant servant rulers God is transforming Jacob in this story. Esau receives that message that Jacob is loaded. Jacob desires you know, his favor, reconciliation. And verse 6 tells us that at the mere mention of Jacob's possessions and Jacob's name, Esau comes charging towards Jacob and his family with 400 men. 400 men. For all Jacob knows, Esau is in the exact same place he was 20 years prior that he's ready to murder him. That he comforts himself with thoughts of killing his brother. So the Bible tells us, and rightly so, that he is greatly distressed and he's afraid. He's afraid for his own life. He's afraid for his wives. He's afraid of his children's lives. But this is really important that, this, that his fear in the story, it doesn't paralyze him. It actually drives him to his knees in intercession to God. It drives him to the throne of grace. And in verse 9, we see that Jacob begins to call upon the name of the Lord. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we need to learn this as followers of Christ, that God intentionally, not haphazardly, He intentionally brings things in our life that are exceedingly difficult and they're exceedingly terrifying and His express purpose in bringing those things into our life is that we would call upon Him as our sovereign God. This is His invitation to us. Psalm Fifty, Verse 15, God says this, Call upon Me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify Me. God says, if you have trouble, bring it to Me. Call upon Me in the day of trouble. And this is exactly what Jacob does in this story. He begins to call upon the name of the Lord. And I want to say this again, we have to learn this. We have to learn this pivot to prayer. It's like, it's like a reflex of the soul that when things come in our life, whatever it is, brothers and sisters, whatever it is that makes you anxious, whatever it is that you find difficult, whatever it is that brings you fear or anxiety, we have to bring this to the feet of our sovereign God God says call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you I will deliver you whatever frightens you should drive you to your knees should drive you to your knees there's a there's a simple simple prescription in the book of James James chapter 5 verse 13 it doesn't get any more simple than this in all the word of God but this can help you in thousands of ways James 5.13 says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Take your burdens to the Lord. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. This is exactly what Jacob does in this text. He begins to call upon the mighty name of God. And his prayer in, in Genesis 32 It's instructive to us. By watching this man of God pray, we can learn how better to pray in our own life. So I want to mention a few things about his prayer. Jacob's prayer before the Lord. First, I want you to notice that he invokes the God of the covenant in verse 9. That means when he addresses his prayer To God, He doesn't call upon some general um, idea of God, the man upstairs. That's not who He's talking to. He begins to call on the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. This is the God who has revealed Himself in real human history. The God who enters into human history and gives these salvation promises, the God of Abraham. And the God of Isaac, he begins to call on the God who reveals himself in real human history. Now I want you to notice this in verse 9. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop merely with calling on his granddaddy's God and his daddy's God. In fact, he, 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 he uses a different word than Elohim for God, and he begins to call upon the Lord Yahweh God, and in verse 9, not just granddaddy's God, not just my daddy's God, but He says, the God who spoke to me. The God who spoke to me. He begins to invoke the God of the covenant, but not this far off God that's revealed Himself to others throughout the generations, but the God who revealed Himself to me. The God who speaks to me. It's a beautiful picture here of the God of parents becoming the God of the children. Generational faith being passed down from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. God of the fathers becomes the God of the Son. He invokes the God of the covenant. Second, I want you to notice that Jacob begins to plead the Word of God. He begins to plead the Word of God. Actually, he does this twice In this prayer, he begins and ends his prayer with quoting something that God had already spoken to him. In verse 9, he pivots back to this general promise that God had given him. In verse 9, Jacob says this. He says that God told him to return to the land and then he reminded God that God had promised that I may do good to you that I may do good to you. What is Jacob doing in this text, in this prayer? He's pleading the promises of God. He's reaching back for something firm that has been revealed to him, and he's taking his stand in prayer, and he's standing on the promises of God. And so what did God say? What did God say to Jacob? Well, he didn't say this, return to the land of Canaan, but you're going to be slaughtered by your brother on the way back. That's not what God said. God said, return to the land of Canaan that I may do you good. Jacob is reminding God of God's own word. God, you said. God, come stand by your word. And he continues to do this in verse 12. I want you to think about how specific his fear was in verse 12. He's scared that Esau is about to kill him and all of his children. Him and all of his children. And we said this, there's something special about this family, the family of Abraham. This is not just any old family in the ancient Near East. This This is the family that the covenant promises of God are being passed down through. And so this offspring promise that's given to the family of Abraham, this is how Jesus is going to come into the world. And so he's seized with fear and he he says, God, if they kill me, what's going to happen to this promise? And he reaches back and he quotes that offspring promise that we've seen so many times in the book of Genesis. And in verse 12 he says, But God, you said... God, You said, I will make Your offspring as the sand of the sea. As the sand of the sea. Right in the midst of his fears, he's reaching and grabbing words from God and standing on them in prayer. And we need to learn this, that the very best words that we can give to God in prayer are the words that He has already given to us in Holy Scripture. God delights when we pray His will. Not when we demand Him to do everything that we want Him to do, but when we pray His will back to Him. When we pray His will back to Him. And there's no better way to do this than to pray His word. Pray God's word back to God. So this is an example that we can learn from that we need to be praying the Bible. We need to be praying the Bible. It's a perfectly good question to ask other brothers and sisters in Christ, brother and sister, how can I pray for you? Perfectly good question. I don't want to w- w- want you to move off of that at all, but I, wanna, I, w- I want you to remember that there are a lot of ways that you know already how to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ because God has revealed it in His Word. God has revealed it in His Word. And if you, if you need a place to meditate on, To to learn these things, there's no better place to go than the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament as they begin to bow their knee and call upon the Father on behalf of the Bride of Christ and the people of God. And the Word of God will show you how to pray for other Christians. Things like, may, may you be strengthened with power in your inner man. Things like, may you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May you be filled with the Holy Spirit always increasing in the knowledge of God. May He who started a good work bring it to completion to the day of Christ. We need to pray Scripture. Pray the promises and the Word of God back to our God. Number three, I want us to notice that Jacob He draws near to the throne of grace and not the throne of merit. And you see this in verse 10. He's at the throne of grace. He's not at the throne of merit. He says to God in verse 10, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And we saw our brother lead us in prayer. We heard him just a few moments ago when he confessed confidence in God. God, I know that you hear me. But it's not because of me, because I'm nothing. He's coming to the throne of grace. He's confessing his unworthiness before God. I am not worthy. And I want you to imagine how much the Lord loves to hear us say that. I am not worthy, Lord. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love that you have done to me, that you have given to me. I'm not worthy. Sometimes we can wrongly think about humility as though humility were kind of like this icing on the cake. It's not. Okay, All humility is is just waking up to reality. You seeing things as they truly are. It's not icing on the cake. It's just how it is that we are not worthy. And this is how Jacob comes to God with nothing in his hands to bring Jacob pleads for mercy. And he says this in verse 11, God, I'm not worthy. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of my brother. This is true prayer. True prayer is a humble plea before a holy God of grace. This is what's so wrong about name it, claim it theology that barges into the throne room of heaven Begin slinging around the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and telling God what to do for us. We come to the throne of grace with nothing to appease God with. We are not worthy. And we lift our petitions as beggars before God. God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. The last thing I want us to see here is that Jacob, he fights the fight of faith in this prayer and we need to learn this rhythm well. We've mentioned this in, 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 in the past several weeks at Grace Community Church. Fighting the fight of faith. Look at what he says in verse 11. He tells God, I fear him. Now sometimes we can have really bad ideas of what mature Christianity and real faith looks like. And one of those bad ideas is that if you're filled with faith, you have no fear. And look at it, right there, the man of God fighting the fight of faith. He looks up to God and he says, God, I am afraid. I fear him. I am afraid of my brother right now. That's not what faith is. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is not allowing that fear to prevail in our hearts. It's going to the Lord, trusting the Lord in the midst of this fear. And So notice what he does. These two steps in verse 11, verse 12. Verse 11, I am afraid. Verse 12, but you said. Think about that formula. And just insert hundreds of things, thousands of things in your life that can go in those two blanks. Tell God what you're afraid of. Tell God your fears. Confess them to the Lord. Don't pretend like He can't see your trembling heart anyway. Confess your fears to God. Insert into the blank. Tell the Lord what you're afraid of. And then reach for a promise from God's Word and tell God what He said. God, I'm afraid, but God, You said. This is the fight of faith. Fighting to believe the promises of God In the midst of fear. And what we see in Jacob in Genesis 32 is he's bold, he's unrelenting at the throne of grace. He's casting his cares upon the Lord. And I want us to remember that when we do this, when we do likewise, God is so glorified. God is so glorified in your life when you confess. I cannot bring my own deliverance, but I call upon the Mighty One. Lord, please deliver me. He's the fountain. Call upon Him in the name of trouble, and He will deliver you. In verse 13, Jacob sends his gift, this massive monetary gift in elaborate style to Esau. Droves, and another drove, and another drove. And again, I don't think we should read this as an act of distrust or a scheme, another scheme in Jacob's life, but as an act of restitution. He desires to right his wrongs toward his brother. In verse 22, he begins to prepare to meet his brother Esau, and he sends everything he has across the river in verse 22. And then in verse 24, we're told that he was left... Alone. He was left all alone. No one else around him. And this is exactly where God wanted His servant. is all by Himself. All by Himself. And I think the context leads us to believe that He wanted to be by Himself to more fully intercede for deliverance from Esau, His brother. I don't think He's pawning off His family. He's fighting the fight of faith. This is like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that He's surrounded by His disciples, and yet He's fighting the fight of faith in prayer, and He walks away from His disciples about a stone's throw, and He begins to more earnestly pour out His heart before the Lord. We're told that Jesus is agonizing in prayer to the point of sweating great drops of blood. Jacob's being conformed into his image. And he continues to pour out his heart to the Lord in prayer. And then all of a sudden, in verse 24, we're told that a man violently grabs a hold of Jacob. Verse 24, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. He's in the middle of praying before God and all of a sudden he's assaulted and someone grabs him. Jacob initially, he has no idea who this is. I want you to try to picture yourself in his position. He's in a life or death struggle and he has no idea who his opponent is. Maybe he's a robber that's seen how much money Jacob has that's come to kill him and take all of his stuff he doesn't know. Maybe he's an assassin that sent from his brother Esau to spill his blood and to end his life. He doesn't know. All he knows is that this man has laid a hold of him and they're in this hand-to-hand fight-to-the-death combat and the text tells us that they wrestle until the breaking of the day and his opponent's identity is being concealed in the darkness he can't. Make out his face. We're told that this conflict lasts until the breaking of the day, which means that this wrestling match, this fight to the death struggle, and let me say this, this is not like wrestling on American cable television. Okay, This is not play, this is not play around a little while, this is a life or death struggle. This man is trying to kill Jacob. And Jacob is fighting back for his life. And all night this happens, several hours long, they're wrestling back and forth, a fight to the death. And only later, into this match, into this struggle, into this combat, does Jacob realize that he's wrestling with God Himself. He's wrestling with the Lord Himself. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 tells us about this moment in the middle of this match where Jacob begins to reveal that the man that has laid a hold of him is no mere man. In verse 25, what happens? This man reaches out with his finger and he touched the hip of Jacob and with the touch of his finger we're told in verse 25 that he puts his hip out of socket. He puts his hip out of socket. This is amazing. You can confirm this with some medical professionals at Grace Community Church after we're done today. But the hip joint in the human body is one of the strongest joints in the human body. It takes tremendous force. I think about 70% of dislocated hip joints are caused by car accidents, major trauma to separate your hip uh, your leg from the hip joint, and yet we're told in this passage that what happens basically in a car wreck today happens with the fingertip of this man that Jacob is wrestling against. He touches his hip and he puts it out of joint. This is no mere man that has laid a hold of Jacob. this is God himself, and in fact after after this Struggle is over in verse 30. Jacob says that he has seen God face to face. That that, that in this struggle, that this was a struggle not against man, but against God face to face. This This is a manifestation of the pre incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen this several times already in the book of Genesis. That prior to the incarnation, When God took on human nature forever in the person of Christ, we've seen God periodically appear in human form and reveal Himself to His servants. We saw this in the Garden of Eden where Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. We saw this earlier with Jacob's grandfather Abraham where he ate a meal with the Lord God in human form. And here we see Jacob wrestling with what looks to be a man, but it's actually God Himself. The man touches Jacob's hip, puts it out of joint, and Jacob is crippled by God. And yet the text tells us that he's crippled, and yet he's clinging to the Lord. His hip's out of joint, tremendous pain, crippled yet clinging. And he says, I will not let you go. Unless you bless me, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This physical struggle is really a picture of what Jacob's whole life has been like. Okay? This is a picture of, uh, of Jacob prevailing in prayer with God. This physical struggle with this man is a picture of what we just saw earlier in this chapter, that he is prevailing with God in prayer. And it needs to be really clear in this passage that he does not overpower God. God allows him to take hold of him. God sustains him while he wrestles against the Lord. This man could end the conflict at any moment with the touch of his finger. He doesn't overpower the Lord. He's at the throne of grace pleading with God. And we see this really clearly later in the Old Testament. The prophet Hosea you can turn with me to Hosea chapter 12. The prophet Hosea comments back on the struggle with Jacob and God. And it makes it really clear that when Jacob is wrestling this man, he's not overpowering him at all. Listen to what Hosea says. Verse 3, chapter 12, he tells us that he strives with God. Look at what he says in verse 4. This is Jacob. Hosea tells us that he strove with the angel and prevailed. And then he says this, he wept and he sought God's favor. You see that? Hosea's telling us something that the Genesis narrative doesn't tell us that Jacob, as he's clinging to this man, the Lord, as he's clinging to him, he's not overpowering him, he's weeping his eyes out and seeking his favor, and he's saying, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. He's weeping before God. He's earnestly pleading the favor of God. And so I want you to picture him there. Picture him there in the middle of the night. He's soaking with sweat, exhausted. He's been fighting for his life for probably several hours at this point. He's crippled. His hip is out of joint and he's overwhelmed with pain and he's weeping before the Lord. Lord. But he refuses to let go. And he says, God, I will not let go without your blessing. I will not let you go, Lord, until you bless me. And this is the picture of the man of faith. The servant of God. I will not let you go, Lord, until you bless me. And I want us to pause right here and I want us to examine our life. Brothers and sisters, examine your life. When is the last time your pursuit of God, your pursuit of God, could be described with anything that approaches Jacob's determination in this passage to lay hold of the Lord? Weeping before God. God, I will not let you go until you bless me. When's the last time that you earnestly sought the face and the favor of God? Anything like this desperate and this earnest. He's, he's got his hip out of joint and yet he clings to the Lord. When's the last time you prayed with tears for this local church that God has made you a part of and says, Lord, make us a praise in the earth? Do whatever it takes, Lord, to make us like Christ, to make us a praise in the earth. Don't let us get comfortable, God. Conform us into the image of Jesus. Make us that perfect man, the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. Are you praying with tears before the Lord? Are you earnestly seeking the face of God? We're the generation of Jacob. We're cut from the same cloth as this man. We're just as needy as he is and we have the same God that he had. When's the last time you earnestly poured out your heart in prayer for a blessing for your children? That you're weeping before the Lord because you know that unless God moves in power and sovereign mercy and grace that your kids are Ephesians 2 dead in their trespasses and sins. And you lift up a prayer to God and you say, God, I'm not worthy. Please deliver them, Lord. And you don't let Him go until He blesses you. Fighting, fighting the fight of faith. Wrestling with God in prayer. Praying for your spouse. Praying for your kids. Praying for the lost that is all around us. Headed to eternal destruction. And you say, Lord, please deliver them. Please save them. Save them, God. Open their eyes. Earnestly pleading at the throne of grace. This is what His example calls us to. Self-examination. Are we seeking God earnestly? Are we seeking the face of the Lord? We as a local church, are we more known at Grace Community Church as a house of preaching or a house of prayer? Those, we got sound doctrine and our eyes are dotted and our T's are crossed, but do we call upon the name of the Lord? Do we know God? Do we earnestly seek the face of God? Are we intercessors? Every one of us in this room can grow in this area. This is a convicting example. He would rather have his bones broken in half than to leave the prayer closet without the blessing of God. That's our example of laying hold of the Lord, of desperate prayer before the face of God. Does that sound like us or does it not? Leonard Ravenhill, was used to, he was known for this phrase. He says, no man is greater than his prayer life. No man is greater than his prayer life. And that's an important vital sign for Christians that no Christian is greater than his prayer life, his or her prayer life. And I wonder what would happen if we asked ourselves that if we measured ourselves by this mark of maturity of unrelenting pursuit of God and prayer if that was the mark of maturity in Christ unrelenting pursuit of God and prayer how tall would you stand in the kingdom of God no man no woman is greater than his prayer life we got to seek the face of God we got to earnestly petition Our God and Jacob's example in this passage of weeping before the Lord, broken before God, he's got nowhere else to turn. He needs the Lord God to answer him. And his example reminds me of two of the most neglected commands in all of Scripture. And both of these commands can be found in Romans 12, and they're very simple. They're very simple. The first is this, be fervent in spirit. And the second is this, be constant in prayer. Be fervent in spirit and be constant in prayer. Sometimes we are really bad about creating categories that the Word of God doesn't allow us to create. And one of those categories, if we're not careful that we can you know, set up in our own minds is those are the zealous Christians, and these are the other Christians. God's Word commands every follower of Christ to be fervent in spirit. Romans 12. That phrase in Romans 12 literally means to boil in spirit. That you are to be white hot with zeal for the Lord God. Every Christian, every follower of Christ. And then another category that we can sometimes create is that those are the prayer warriors. These are the prayer warriors in the church, and these are the other Christians. And yet God's Word, look what it calls us to. Be constant in prayer. Be fervent in spirit, and be constant in prayer. Seek the face of God. Every follower of Christ, ask yourself this morning, is God not worthy of this? Is he, is he not worthy for us to linger in His presence and to call upon His holy name saying, Lord, You do it. Do it for Your glory. God, I will not let You go until You bless me. May God help us to stir ourselves up to more earnestly seek the Lord in prayer. Every single one of us seeking the face of the God of Jacob. This text tells us that the sun rose that morning after this wrestling match with God. The sun rose on this battered man, Jacob, that morning. I want you to see him there sweaty, exhausted. sun rises, and he's blessed by God. God, Jacob didn't let him go until he blesses him. And God blesses him. And we're told towards the end of this chapter, in verse 30, that Jacob memorializes this place where this happened. This geographic piece of land. He gives it a name, the name Peniel, which means the face of God. Jacob wanted it to never be forgotten that at this spot, I met God. The Lord God came to me. I had a personal Encounter with the living God. And Jacob set up this memorial in Peniel. And he reminded himself with this name that God could have killed him at Peniel. And yet God allows Jacob to walk away with his life, with the blessing. And this text tells us with a new name. Verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. That name means supplanter, schemer. But your name will now be Israel, for you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. The man is known now as we look back through the generations, not as the schemer, but as the man who sought the face of God. This is the memorial that he sets up at Peniel. Most commentators believe, we're told in this text that that he, as he passes Peniel, verse 31, that he's limping as he walks because of his hip. And most Bible scholars believe that, that Jacob dislocated hip. The crippling that Jacob experienced in this wrestling match would have been something that he suffered from, from the rest, for the rest of his life. That for the rest of his life, this man would walk with the limp That God gave him at Peniel. What does that mean? That God blesses him, God gives him a new name, he walks away with the blessing of God, and yet at the same time, he walks away with this physical reminder of his own weakness, this crippling, this physical disability. And for the rest of his life, as he drags that leg behind him, Jacob is reminded of two things God is mighty and I am weak. God is mighty, and I am weak. It was at Peniel, more than anywhere else, in Jacob's journey, that he learned once for all that God's blessing doesn't come through Jacob's scheming. God's blessing doesn't come through Jacob's scheming. It comes through grace. It comes by trusting in God. This is the reminder that God gave the man in his body for the rest of his life. In verse 32, we're told that Israel, the nation, also memorialized this wrestling match at Peniel by not consuming this tendon that was in the hip joint. And and, and what we see here is not only is God instructing Jacob in this passage, but the whole nation takes a lesson away from this wrestling match between God and, and Jacob. That God taught taught Jacob that the blessing wouldn't come through scheming and, and through this match, God teaches the whole nation, the whole nation of Israel that His blessing doesn't come through human schemes but only through faith in God. Only through faith in God. Not through human power. It was only as He was crippled into weakness that He inherited The blessing from the Lord. Later in the Old Testament, God would tell His people explicitly that His blessing would only come. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, not by power, but by My Spirit, says the Lord. God wants His people to believe that. This is His plan from Genesis to Revelation. that, That He's the fountain and we call upon Him to glorify His name. My question to leave you with this morning is simple. Have you been forever changed by an encounter with the living God of Peniel? Have you been forever changed by an encounter with the living God of Peniel? I don't believe that this this story in Genesis 32 is necessarily Jacob's conversion It's definitely a story of Jacob being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. But this story is a good reminder that God always transforms those who truly encounter Him. Always. No one has ever met the Holy One, the God of fire, the God of heaven and earth. No one has ever met Him in a saving way, and stayed the same. No one, no one. And in that sense, every Christian conversion is like a personal Peniel moment where God lays a hold of us and He changes us forever. Changes us forever. Jesus told us this. Gospel of John, He tells us that nothing short of the new birth is required for us to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is a reminder for every ear here. Being a religious person is not enough. Coming to church, though it's a good thing, it's not enough. Knowing some facts about God is not enough. Even knowing some facts about Jesus Christ is not enough. You have to be changed. And you will be changed. The moment you meet the true and the living God. You must be recreated. You must be born again. You must be made entirely new. New heart, new mind, new identity. The old must pass away. The new must come. And I'll use this moment as a reminder to every child in the room that there's no child that's ever come to Christ through their parents. Your parents can be your God to Christ, but you have to come to Christ by yourself. You have to encounter the true and the living God. You have to come to know Him. Not just your father's God, not just your mama's God, or your grandma's God. He's got to be your God. He's got to be your God. He wants to make you new. He doesn't want to... Uh, put a little makeup on a corpse. That's not what Jesus is after. Prettying up your life a little bit. He wants to raise you from the tomb. He wants to, to bring you out of death into eternal life forever. Everyone who's ever encountered God in a saving way is changed forever. Brothers and sisters, in our renewed zeal to pursue our God, according to Jacob's example in this passage, and I hope that it affects you just like me, that you're grieved as you see this example of what you lack in your life, and you want to be grieved into repentance, that I want to grow in seeking my God. I want to seek His face more earnestly. I want to grow in seeking the face of the Lord. And as we head out in that glorious pursuit, of seeking God, I want to remind us that our God is the God who sought us first. He sought us first before we ever dream of laying hold of Him. God is the one who laid a hold of Jacob first in this text. God laid a hold of Jacob and wrestled Jacob before Jacob ever laid a hold of God. And this is a foreshadowing. God's coming to Jacob, grabbing a hold of Jacob, This is a foreshadowing of His coming to us in Jesus Christ. And it might be hard for you to believe this morning, but the truth is that we who are in Christ, we have more of God than Jacob had. He he wrapped his hands around the neck and the head and wrestled God in the form of a man. And yet through the Gospel, we have more of God than what Jacob had jacob's request in this text was denied when he asked to know the name of god god didn't reveal it to him and yet i want you to consider this morning that every christian in this room who has received the gospel you have been baptized into the name that jacob never knew you you have more of god than what jacob ever dreamed of having He wrestled with this dark, shadowy figure in the night. And yet in the Gospel, we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the radiance of the glory of the Father, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. That's who we know. That's who we know. Jesus has fully, finally, and forever revealed the Father to us. Jacob's physical body was crippled by the grace of God, but we more so. Our old man was forever crucified with Jesus Christ and we will never be the same. This is our God. Before we ever lay hold of Him, He's the one that lays hold of us. And my prayer for you is that the life that you now live in the flesh would be a life of faith and the Son of God. That you would spend your days wrestling and laying a hold of the One who laid a hold of you first. That you would spend your life calling on the One who called you first. The God of Jacob. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You today, God, and we want to respond to Your Word. God, we pray that You would be pleased to use Your Word in our life today, God. God, use this week's sermon to do Your work in, in this local church. God, build up my brothers and sisters in Christ. Make them mighty in prayer. Make them those who inherit promises, who call upon the name of the Lord, who don't let You go until You bless them. God, I pray that You would mark us as a local church more and more as those who lay a hold of You. Those who will not let You go. Those who wrestle You. And God, we pray that You would make us a desperate people. God, we know so many times, God, we don't pray because we see so much strength in our own resources. We're deceived, God. Lord, we pray that You would tear back the lies from our eyes, that You would show us how powerless we truly are, how desperate we truly are. Do whatever it takes, God, to glorify Your name in this church. You are the God of Jacob. Lord, help us to seek Your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.